for all the things that modern skiing has done that are wonderful. And I, I love chairlifts. I love, you know, I wouldn't want to ski pommel lifts every day. I love gondolas. I love fast lifts. You know, it's, that's wonderful. But let's take a second and look at what we've also maybe left behind. And, and I think that's when you see this love of old ski areas of historic black and white photographs. The nostalgia comes from the sense that we've lost something. And, you know, I think that's in many ways what draws people to Hickory is the sense that it's not just a bygone era. You know, they may not be able to put their finger on it, but they know that there's something about that, that their day there when they ski at Hickory that's different. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. You all know I hate to see a ski area go under. And today we are going to hear how a New York classic plans on rising from the dead. First, I did the hard part, the interview. Now, I need you to do the easy part. Join the storm. Go to stormskiing.com and subscribe to the free storm skiing newsletter. If you found this podcast on iTunes or Spotify or some other podcasting service, I am very glad you did. Welcome and thank you. But there is a lot more to the storm and to the podcast. The newsletter that accompanies this episode, for example, has historic trail maps and photos and additional context that really help tell the story in a way that the audio just cannot do all by itself. And there's a lot more to it too. I am breaking down the world of lift served skiing weekly with analysis and news updates. And it is all free with the free email newsletter at stormskiing.com. You can also follow the storm on Instagram or Twitter at stormskijournal. All right. First up, I am very excited to introduce to you a new partner, Spot. Let's face it, if you're a skier, the risk of injury is unavoidable. Meaning if we send it too hard, we're just one crash away from crushing medical expenses. Not to mention less time spent on the slopes. That is why Spot partners with ski resorts like Telluride, Taos, and more to offer injury insurance with lift tickets and season passes. Spot easily integrates with any booking platform and does all the heavy lifting to ensure guests are covered when they're on the mountain. If your guests get hurt, Spot can pay up to $25,000 of their out-of-pocket medical bills per incident with zero deductible. With Spot, skiers can focus on a full and quick recovery so they can get back in their skis and on the mountain as soon as possible. Visit stormskiing.getspot.com to partner with Spot and provide your skiers with an amazing experience while showing them that their health and safety are top priorities. A win-win for your resort and for your guests. Skiers, make sure your mountain has Spot so you can shred with peace of mind this season. Learn more at stormskiing.getspot.com. That's stormskiing.getspot.com. And of course, I am still proud to partner with Mountain Gazette. Issue 196 dropped on my doorstep the other day, and it is just lights out. Photo galleries exploring the Cascades, pow skiing in my home, New York City, essays on snowboarding a zen, Alaskan expeditions, and Mammoth Mountain founder Dave McCoy. There's even a little crash course on the mysterious coyote, and of course, a moving look at skiing in Afghanistan before the country fell to the Taliban. But hey, don't just listen to me. Listen to my man, at Isaac Gardner on Twitter. Here's what he said upon receiving his issue. Quote, I had heard the hype from at Storm Skiing Journal, but this is more beautiful and even more appealing after only a before kid bedtime flip through than I had imagined. Thanks at Skiing Rogi. Thanks so very much. I need this this season and for many more. End freaking tweet. Don't miss the next one. Subscribe now. Enter code GOHIRE-10, all one word, for 10% off subscriptions over at mountaingazette.com. This code is only valid for listeners of the storm. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. Episode 69 David Kronheim, president of the Shareholders Corporation at Hickory Ski Center, New York. There's nothing else in New York like Hickory. In fact, there may not be anything anywhere quite like Hickory. 
1,200 feet of gnarly, ungroomed vert, no snowmaking. The only way to the top is on antique surface lifts that leak oil on your jacket and yank your shoulders out of their sockets on the way up. It's amazing. And if it sounds too good to last, that's because it didn't. Founded by 10th Mountain Division veterans after World War II, Hickory had a very hard time competing with the high-speed lifts and massive trail network and killer snowmaking that unfolded down the road at Gore. Eventually, it folded in 2005. Hickory did come back briefly, but then it shut down again after the very dry 2014-15 winter. Hickory was an anachronism, and it was hard to envision a way that it could survive. So it sat dormant for seven years, and you couldn't have blamed anyone for assuming it would remain that way forever. But maybe not. My guest today has worked with the Hickory community on a plan to revive the place. It's novel. It's creative. It's probably not what you were expecting, but I think it's actually going to work. Let's hear it. My guest today is the president of the Shareholders Corporation for the Hickory Ski Center in New York. Founded by veterans of the U.S. Army's 10th Mountain Division in 1945, Hickory has 18 trails on a 1,200-foot vertical drop served by a pair of Poma lifts Hickory plans to reopen this winter for the first time since 2015. David Cronheim is my guest. David, thank you so much for joining us today. Happy to be here. Uh, David, this is my first podcast of 2022, so I'll start by wishing you a Happy New Year, but also oh, asking... Honored. <laughs> did, did you get much skiing in over the holidays? Yeah, I got up to Gore a little bit. We got out. I've got a, uh, a three-year-old little girl that it's actually her third winter on skis. I took her out when she was 18 months. So now uh, that's that's my escape from the house is to uh, to get her out on skis. So I made it up to Gore a couple days and, uh, you know, it wasn't the greatest, uh, wasn't the greatest New Year's in terms of weather, but, uh, you know, it was just nice to be outside. That's beautiful. Yeah, my daughter also learned to ski at Gore. I found they have a really good ski school there. We took her to a few different ones, and Gore was the one that finally got her over the hump. That's great. Yeah, great place to learn to ski. The gondola is really nice for beginners. Yeah, yeah. Tremendous mountain. So I have not gotten up to Gore yet this year. I usually try to wait till they bust their glades open. But we're here to talk about Hickory right down the road from yep. Gore. So let's just go right back to the beginning here. Tell us how Hickory was founded. Yeah, so the uh, story really starts with with two guys, Ken Bates and Franz Winbauer. Um, they were both in the 10th Mountain Division, which as you, if your listeners are probably familiar with, since it founded, uh, the veterans of the 10th Mountain Division founded something, I, I think the last count was north of 65 ski areas, um, you know, some very famous ones, uh, Vale, Aspen, Sugarbush, A-Basin, um, you know, they held important roles in the Sierra Club, they... Uh, that they were really instrumental that the veterans of the 10th Mountain Division were in the creation of skiing as a commercial enterprise following the Second World War. Uh, so, you know, Ken Bates and Franz Winbauer served together. Uh, Ken was an officer. Franz uh, was an enlisted man. So they, uh, they had a little trouble kind of getting together to talk about their big plan to, to, to found a ski area. But uh, following their service, um, they set about to find a site somewhere near the Albany area. And they were looking for a for really uh, two criteria, north facing and, and something with significant vertical. Um, they looked at a few sites, didn't really like what they had found. Um, and then they've, they've settled on uh, the, what is the area kind of known as the Three Sisters, uh, a very uniquely beautiful area um, that had, you know, apart from its skiing, uh, right at the confluence of the Hudson and the Scroon Rivers, uh, just a, a really, really pretty spot. Um, and they found these, you know, the, the middle peak, uh, has about a 1,200 foot drop, uh, faces north, and it's it's just a really great skiers mountain. I, I've never seen anywhere that uh, that holds the snow quite as well as as Hickory does. The, you know the trails are quite narrow. Um, they're they're well shaded in that respect. Um, so it, it's an interesting, and of course the converse uh, side of that is that the uh, the deck that looks at the mountain faces south. So you, get, you kind of get the best of both worlds: a big sunny oh, southern nice. facing deck and a big north facing mountain. Beautiful. But uh, yeah, so that was that was kind of how it got off the ground. Uh, it actually opened in 1946 uh, with, a, with a rope tow that was on what's now the, uh, the Honey Run. Uh, 1956, about a decade later, uh, they, they installed Palma 1, which is the, the lower mountain Palma. Uh, it kind of goes from a, just above the base lodge up to about, uh, you know, kind of halfway up, maybe three quarters of the way up the mountain, about 650 feet. Um, that was actually when the corporation was founded. Um, the 
you know, they needed to raise capital in order to put in the ski lift, to put in a Palma lift that was, you know, kind of cutting edge um, technology at the time. And, you know, the, the, the two founders didn't have the, the capital, obviously, to, to do that. So the corporation was founded and it, uh, you know, they put in Palma One. Uh, they put a T-bar in that went slightly down below the, the base lodge. That was 1965. And then the last uh, the last lift that was put in was in 1971, Palma, Palma Two, which goes all the way to the summit of the mountain. So those original, the, the founders were there and one of them held on to that mountain for quite a long time, right? Yeah. So, so Franz Windbauer has been involved, uh, was involved, he's passed away at this point. Um, but his, actually his, his daughter, Sue Katana, Sue Windbauer Katana, uh, is, uh, serves as, as our, you know, mountain manager, the person who's in charge of the hill today. So that there's a long history and, and the Windbauer is just one of many families that have been involved, uh, you know, many, many generations, but, you know, after the uh, the corporation was founded, uh, Winbauer, you know, had a, a significant interest in the in the corporation and was remained active uh, for a number of years, decades. So, take us through who has owned the ski area over the years up until now. Yeah, so obviously started with with Winsbauer, Winbauer and Bates. Uh, then the, the corporation was founded, and so that that sort of diffused the interest down to all the shareholders. Um, it was, uh, you know, the kind of thing where if you lived in the area, you you bought a share. Um, you know, I, I, I actually own one share now myself. <laughs> it was required to sit on the board when we, we, uh, uh, we started kind of working on things together, uh, back, you know, five, six years ago. Um, the, you know, the majority shareholder at this point is Bill Van Pelt. When he came in, the Hickory had closed in, you know, kind of the early two thousands. Um, he came in to, to resurrect the resort and, uh, you know, he was very appreciative of the history of the, the corporation and, and, thought that it'd be a better idea instead of just outright buying the the ski area, buying the land or buying the assets uh, to, to buy a controlling interest in the corporation. So Bill Van Pelt, a Saratoga native, um, is the majority shareholder, the sort of overwhelming majority shareholder. But, um, you know, there's still quite a lot of families who have, uh, you know, have shares in the corporation. And how involved is Bill? And, and to what extent does he just defer to you and the rest of the shareholders to come up with this plan, for example, to resurrect the ski area, which we'll talk about in a moment, and do all the other operational things around Hickory. Yeah. So, I mean, I, Bill, you know, Bill lives down in Texas now, so he's not kind of as involved in the day-to-day. Um, you know, it's really, uh, Sue has really been the driving force and, uh, you know, kind of with this this latest effort, uh, I put together sort of the plan for, for this uh, in concert with Sue. Uh, a lot of people in town, Rich Larkin, who was a uh, councilman in town had a very, very leading role in uh, kind of agitating, hey, this is this is important to the town and we want to see Hickory succeed. So uh, it's very much a, a local effort. Um, it's also, you know, it, it's been focused on trying to, to create a bigger tent, if you will. So, you know, Hickory has a very loyal fa- following, but it's a small following. And in order to really be successful, we've, we've worked hard to try to grow that uh, to people who are beyond just sort of the local area. Um, I think, you know, Hickory, we, everybody sort of calls it the legend and then it's the motto, right? Ski the legend. Um, and, uh, you know, I think the, the legend has traveled well. So let's zoom out a little bit here, David. So you're you're going back to the 1940s, to the scariest founding. And from my understanding, it had several decades of uninterrupted operations. Correct. And then it closed twice now. It closed once in the mid 2000s, came back for a few years, and now it's been closed since 2015. So so a, a couple of points on that or a couple of questions for you. First of all, why did it close each of those times? And and second, how does that happen after decades of uninterrupted operation because Hickory as we'll talk about does not have snowmaking, but it's never had snowmaking and there were some lean snow years certainly in the 70s and 80s. So so why suddenly after six decades of operation, did it have these bumps? We'll start with the, the 2005 closure uh, that, you know, I think that was probably uh, easily explained as kind of just that the ski world had changed quite a bit since the founding, uh, you know, the, and Hickory had changed to some extent as well. Um, so when Hickory was founded, it was really, there was a huge volunteer component. Uh, people would spend their time at the Hill. People would volunteer to work the concessions, to do all, you know, all the things that needed to be done to cut the trails, work the lifts. So Hickory was able to survive when other resorts would not have. And a resort is a, you know, probably an overstate, when other ski areas wouldn't have, because they, were, they had such a loyal following of, of volunteers. Um, it's no coincidence that as that 
a, that group of original founders of the resort, those original shareholders got older. So now you're, you're you know, 1956 is the, the corporate founding. So now you're 50 years down the road. That generation was the, the generation that drove Hickory and drove the founding. You know, they just were older and, and less involved and able to do some of the things that uh, that were required. That's one side, right? So the, the labor cost had to increase because there were, few, there were sort of fewer volunteers who were interested. The other side of it is, of course, the expense, right? Insurance went through the roof. Uh, very, very expensive. Um you know, all the things that, that, you know, all the things that cost money to operate a ski area cost more. Uh, the surface lifts are, are vintage, they're antique. It's one of the things that makes Hickory very special. But, you know, it costs more to maintain a lift that's 50 years old than it does one that's that's brand new. So all those things, the sort of confluence of all those factors um, put Hickory in a place where it, it, it really just couldn't survive. And, um, you know, the it, it's been interesting, I think, to see that shift in skiing from, you know, kind of 1940s, 50s skiing to now, one of the things you and I talked about in the sort of pre-call was, uh, you know, the, what the product is that a skier is putting out has really changed quite a bit. You know, if you think about uh, the advent of snowmaking, a lot of resorts that have had snowmaking have created a product that's far superior to what a natural snow ski area can now, superior in some respects, but not superior in others, right? It's, uh, you know, a nice, soft, natural snowfall is one of the things that makes, you know, a place like Madriver Glen or, or Hickory so attractive, right? Or magic, right? When it's, when the snow is good, it's great. When it's bad, it's rocks and dirt. Um, but, you know, we found some old, uh, you know, old advertisements that, that date back to the 50s. And one of the things they talk about is, you know, okay, uh, we're open this weekend. We've got one inch of base. I mean, <laughs> wow. One inch. So imagine skiing, uh, you know, skiing in one, one inch of base today. I don't think, you know, I'm not sure people would even think there was snow on the ground. Right. So all those things kind of together, um, you know, the people's heightened expectations for what they, what a kind of standard ski experience was uh, made Hickory a bit more of an outlier than it would have been in the forties or fifties and not just Hickory, right? I mean, if you go back, New York state has more skiers than any uh, state in the country. They had almost 200 back in the sixties. Wow. Um, you know, we're down in the, I think the forties now. So, you know, 80% of ski areas faced this exact challenge and couldn't survive. And, and many of them couldn't survive nearly as long as Hickory did the first time. Um, it was really due to that core volunteer group that Hickory was able, able to make it into the two thousands when, you know, you know, scores of ski areas had closed in the decades prior. And then the, the 2015 closure, Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so that one, you know, what happened in 2015 was kind of an unfortunate series of events that uh, led to the the sort of mountain manager who had been running the resort not, uh, you know, kind of not uh, not being able to going forward. We'll leave it at that. But um, you know, the the momentum really was lost. We had a bad, you know, kind of a bad winter, um, and you know, it just. these things are hard to keep, you know, it's like a turning an ocean liner. It's hard to, mm-hmm. hard to get them going. And it's once they stop, they're hard to get, you know, it's, it's hard to get them moving. So it, it sounds like David, if I'm understanding the history correctly, is Hickory operated for decades is, is almost just like a local club. These guys just came together. They cut trails, you know, Mel took his turn on the lift while Joe skied and then they switched places. And, and that worked until those guys got too old to care about it anymore. You know, I think their kids cared about it, and, and they still do, and many of those children were involved. It's just not that same level of, um, you know, it wasn't that same level of enthusiasm. Right. So so then Hickory tried to run it as a business, and that didn't work either, right? And it ended up closing two times. We were able to reopen it, but it's been closed for the last six years. So you have a new idea, a new plan, a new uh, vision for how to make Hickory sustainable. So lay this out for us. How is Hickory going to reopen and, and how are you going to be able to sustain a ski area with no snowmaking that's right down the street from Gore that has some of the best snowmaking uh, in the Northeast that, that has been overlooked for a long time that still has antique le- lifts? So what's your vision? What's your plan? Lay it out for us. Well, I, you know, the starting point is probably to talk about the challenge, right? What is it that, that makes Hickory special with things that make Hickory special are also things that make it very, very difficult to, to run. And, you know, it seems like kind of an obvious, um, kind of an obvious comparison, but, you know, Mad River Glen has faced the same challenge, right? They, they don't really have snowmaking. They get a heck of a lot more snow than we do in Warrensburg where, you know, I think down in town, they average 80 inches, you know, so maybe on top of the mountain, we get, 
you know, a hundred, something, something like that in a, in a good winter. The, the challenge came from the fact that the, all the things that would be obvious solutions to the problem of if it was any ski area don't make sense for Hickory. So the things that make Hickory unique and special and so beloved, um, you know, it's, it's the, it's the natural snow. It's the incredible sort of Mad River Glen-esque terrain, very, very steep, very rocky, very, um, you know, you, you ungroomable, certainly not that I would want to, but it's, you know, if you go up there in the summer, it's, I mean, it's rocks. I mean, it's not, uh, it, it's bedrock. You know, if you look at the backside of the mountain, you'll see, um, you know, they're, they're sheer rock cliffs. So it, you know, it's something that, you know, we, we, if you, even if you wanted to put in snowmaking, which wouldn't really make sense from a physical perspective because it moves the goalposts so far. I mean, a, a snowmaking system, even for the lower mountain would be, you know, a million, a million, five, two million dollars, something like that, which would be, uh, you know, just unsustainable for a small ski area. Um, it, it would it would change the character of the resort in a way that didn't really make sense. Um, you know, we wanted to preserve the hickory that everyone knew and loved, not just, you know, kind of have a steeper version of West Mountain. So that that was really the, the one of the first problems was, OK, the, the obvious solution everybody turns to is, OK, snowmaking. It's like, well, you know, in this case, snowmaking really doesn't work. Um, and certainly putting snowmaking on the upper mountain trails, you know, that, that would really seriously change the character of the mountain. So that, that was problematic. The other problem, of course, or again, it's not really a problem. It's just something that's unique to Hickory or the surface lifts, right? These are in, in you know, Madrid Glens has the single chair. We have these Palma lifts um, and it did T-bar to a lesser extent, but the two Palma lifts are, are really iconic. And there's something that's that. You know, anyone who's a ski, has skied at Hickory will tell you, ah, I remember the, you know, did you get thrown off Palma 1 or, you know, did you, that, that Palma 2 really, that's a really fast lift. <laughs> you know, they're, they're really neat. They, to, to give you some perspective, they have the same uphill, like the line speed on these Palmas is the same as an express quad. So you have, you stand there and it's, it's a, uh, you know, modern Palma lifts would have a kind of a disc that you put between your legs and it's, you know, kind of has a, a you know, kind of a, you know, the rope kind of goes out in front of you and you sort of slowly go on the line. These are, <laughs> these really, I mean, they, they have a, basically a, a pole that goes between your legs and a, uh, the, the operator pulls a lever and the thing goes right on the, you know, the, the, uh, the lift line that's moving at the speed of an express quad. So you really, you, you know, depending how springy your particular stick is, you, you get, you get bounced pretty good. Um, that's something that, you know, again, that, you know, your average skier probably is not going to really like. Um, your hickory skier thinks it's one of the coolest things ever and can't wait to take their kids on it. So that, you know, the, upgrading those lifts would be, you know, an obvious solution, but it would really change the character of the resort. And um, that takes us to kind of the next problem, which is that, and this is the sort of big 30,000 foot problem that, that we're looking to work around or address, which is that Hickory cannot sell enough day tickets to be sustainable. Um, the, the sort of comfortable carrying capacity of those two Palmas is, let's call it 200, you know, maybe 200, 300, whatever the number, somewhere in the low hundreds. Um, any more than that, and it kind of, you know, the, the lift lines get to be half an hour and the snow gets skied off too quickly. Um, all, all things that you wouldn't want to have happen, it, again, would all change the character of the resort. And again, and again as snowfall has decreased over the years um you know putting that putting 400 people on the mountain in the morning that that would be the end of the skiing for the day you know it just wasn't uh, it's not sustainable so we had to come up with a, a model that accounted for that that said okay we these are the limitations that we have um in if we want to change those parameters we're unfortunately going to change the character of what we're trying to save so that that really doesn't make any sense uh, how do we do this and you know the the big problem is that Hickory has, you know, I think I said this earlier, but, you know, when it's good, it's great. And when it's bad, it's closed. And, you know, the in prior years, what would happen would be that, you know, Hickory was only open Saturdays and Sundays. So you'd get a snow, you know, you'd get a foot of snow would fall on Wednesday. It'd be tracked out everywhere. People knew about Hickory, so they'd show up. Um, and all of a sudden, you know, you'd have 200 people who were excited to be there. They, they were supporting the mountain. But they pay their 50 bucks for a morning lift ticket, ski hickory off, and that would be it. So we had this situation where we didn't really have a way to harness the enthusiasm um, that surrounded the mountain. Everyone who was kind of doing what they could to support the hill by showing up to ski it was actually in many ways, 
a part of the problem because they would only ski it when Hickory had tons and tons of snow. So the, the, you know, the, the poor people would come out there and ski the rocks in the dirt. You know, they, they wait all this time to, to support the hill and, and, you know, they're there in the good for, for the bad. Um, and the good kind of got taken away from a little bit by people who would, um, you know, we're trying to do the right thing. So that, that was the challenge we came up with is how do we sort of harness this excitement and this energy um, without changing the character? Mm-hmm. The, you know, in terms of the solution, <clears throat> you know, the New York uh, does not have a co-op law that that really is uh, applicable to ski areas. You you can have co-ops in New York, but they're for things like dairy farms or you can have apartment co-ops in the city. Um, but that's the model that we thought made the most sense. So, you know, Mad River Glen, you know, their co-op model is something that, you know, they make it very clear that we're not going to change the character of the resort. We want to keep it the way it is. And there's a price to doing that. And so the co-op fee is a way of basically covering the overhead um, to make sure that you're able to do something that makes no economic sense. And, and there is nothing about Hickory that really makes economic sense uh, to run it the way it, that, that we would want to see it run. So the, the concept is basically that, um, you know, the, and I guess one other, one other challenge, right, would be that the, the Hickory has a lower mountain and an upper mountain. The upper mountain is really steep. The lower mountain is pretty skiable. It's, uh, you know, mainly low intermediate um, blues kind of, you know, in a couple of greens, very, you know, very as rocky as the upper mountain is, the bottom is not. It's, it's mowable with a, you know, with regular mowing equipment, doesn't, doesn't take a lot of snow at all. Um, but because the Hickory skier was coming really for those sort of legendary upper mountain steeps, Hickory never really opened the bottom. You know, this, this is sort of in the, the, the later years. You know, at the beginning of the, the Hickory era, yeah, absolutely, right? Everybody was excited to ski those, you know, 400 feet of vertical was a big deal in 1946. You know, that's, you know, a rope toe certainly be walking up the mountain. Uh, you know, 2005, not really, right? I mean, a 400-foot T-bar sounds like a lot of work for people when they can, you know, go down the street to, to Gore or Killington and hop on an express quad. You know, it's a very different, very different product. So, you know, the lower mountain had really never been operated, Um Apart from the upper mountain, I think they would sell, you know, lower mountain T-bar tickets for 20 bucks or something. And you might get, you know, our uh, ski club is right next door. We, we rent a house at the bottom of the mountain. And, you know, we might be the only people, we'd have six or seven people up and if the T-bar was open. We would be the six or seven people that paid our 25 bucks that day to, to ski the T-bar. Um, right. So that, you know, that was, that was problematic. And we took a really hard look at this and said, there's nothing wrong with the lower mountain. We gets, you know, the amount of snowfall we have in Warrensburg is certainly adequate to ski the lower mountain almost in, in every single winter. Um, you know, there are plenty of little tea, community tea bars in the, in the Adirondacks. Saranac Lake has one. Indian Lake has one. Uh, even Chestertown has a little, uh, a little rope toe, Dynamite Hill, where you can go sledding. And uh, those things are really, those are important to those communities. And, you know, Warrensburg has this wonderful ski resort, but it was sort of like if people weren't willing to take the upper mountain terrain and take the whole thing, then everybody sort of neglected the lower mountain. So our, our concept is to split the mountain basically into two, to have a, a lower mountain that we can, uh, we'll basically lease from the shareholders corporation, the, the bottom of the mountain, the T-bar and the handle toe, all that basically green terrain and, and sort of, I think one or two little low level blues, uh, and set up a 501c3 for that. So we're going to make that basically a community hill along the lines of some of the other very nice community hills throughout the Adirondacks and through New England. Um, that will let us take some of those, uh, you know, take some of those costs, shift them to something that's a, a, a tax deductible vehicle. It'll let us, you know, raise money to, to help support uh, youth skiing, particularly that's something that Bill was really passionate about when, when he bought the mountain was uh, the idea that we're going to get more kids out here. And it's going to be a great place for people who live in the Adirondacks to come uh, get local school kids out here. Um, that's something that we really see that lower mountain as being, if we were to forget about the upper mountain, if, it, if the upper mountain never existed, the lower mountain would have been a great community hill. And so it's a little bit unique in the sense that they're sort of, you know, kind of tied together. This great, what's great beginner and lower mountain terrain for us is happens to be next to this incredible upper mountain set of steeps that, um, you know, has a very, very different consumer. Um, so that, that's kind of the, the, the idea at the 30,000 foot level, break off the, the lower mountain, make that a, a place that's really a community uh, community ski hill, take the upper mountain and find a way to pass through some of those fixed carrying costs on an annual basis. So basically say to people, 
you want the good, you have to take the bad with it. And so there'll be an annual fee, a historic preservation fee, we're calling it, um, basically to uh, help carry the the fixed cost of operating those and maintaining those uh, those upper mountain lifts and, uh, you know, ancillary costs related to that. So that's that's basically the, the, the sort of snapshot of it is, okay, we're going to try to get people to, uh, you know, engage on whichever side of that they think is they want to, right? If you're, a, if you're an eight-year-old learning to ski, you know, we, it's going to be a very, very inexpensive, five or 10 bucks to come out for a, for a day. I think that, you know, we're engaging with the schools to sell uh, very, very inexpensive season passes. Um, you know, that, that's sort of one side. And then the other side, let's get, hey, the people want to be up there and ski the steeps. That's great. We want to be there too. We have to do it in a way that that's sustainable. All right. So break this down for us. So the lower mountain, you can purchase a season pass or a daily lift ticket and there's no license involved. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Exactly. And how much will those things cost? Yeah. So the, um, the way we've got this basic, and, and I guess there's one other, there's one other community we wanted to engage as well, which is all the people who are, um, have been sort of Alpine touring for years at Hickory. Hickory's great for that. And especially when it was closed, you would get a lot of people who would want to just skin up and ski down. So there are kind of three ways to access the mountain. We've, we've put together a uh, basically a, a mountain access license, which is a you can either it's a hundred dollars for the winter, two hundred dollars for the year. Uh, so winter would be skinning up, and year would be hiking and you know other things. Um, that's that just gives you the ability to kind of use your own foot power, go up ski, um, you know, or, or hike. Then the uh, the lower mountain, that's going to be, you can, you can come out, you can buy a day ticket for it, um, you can, or you can buy a season pass. And I think it's going to be, be like free for kids who are under six. Uh, the day tickets are, you know, 10 bucks if you're, uh, you know, 10 bucks if you're a teenager, 15, I think if you're under 18 and adults would be like 30 bucks and something like that. Um, you know, season pass, same thing, it'd be, you know, it'd be like, I think it's $70 if you're under 13, it's 90 if you're under 18 and a hundred bucks if you're over, you know, if you're an adult. Um, and, and less than that, if you're a Warrensburg school child. And I'll have the full breakdown of that in the article that accompanies that podcast for folks who are listening. So stormskiing.com, you'll be able to find all that. So let's look at the upper mountain now. So how much is the upper mountain license going to cost? And what does that include? How do you actually get up there and ski? Yeah. Okay. So this is the, um, this is the big part of the model that's different, right? Which is no day tickets. Um, and the, the, you know, that's something that we, as a, as Hickory kind of understand that that's going to be a, an unpopular position to take. Um, it's, it's not easy to say to people, Hey, I, I want to ski here. I want to come buy a day ticket. I'm sorry. You can't do that. Um, we are going to have some ways we have a lottery or other ways to kind of get, you know, a limited number of day tickets out to people. But the, the main vehicle by which you want people to ski the upper mountain is to, uh, is to buy a historic preservation license, then buy a day ticket. So that that's, again, that's sort of the equivalent of a, a Matter River Glen co-op fee. The, uh, the license is 300 bucks for an individual. It's 450 for a family, which includes two parents and all the minor children living in a, in one household. What you get for that, um, you can buy lift tickets that day. They'll be $50 for an adult, 25 for a child. It includes a lower mountain season pass with that. So you, they, uh, and a mountain access license. So the add on, if the, the lower mountain season passes, let's say that's a hundred bucks, the, uh, mountain access license, if you wanted a year, would be 200 bucks. It's, it's the same price. If, uh, you just have to, you know, that that's your way of supporting the mountain. If you were going to be, if you were an Alpine tour and you wanted to come skin up, it was a hundred bucks and your lower mountain season pass was a hundred bucks. Okay. Then the extra cost for you is, you know, a hundred dollars to come, uh, you know, to be able to buy an upper mountain lift ticket. So you pay your $300 upper mountain license. Then every time the POMAs are open that you want to access the POMAs, it's $50. Is that right? Correct. Yep. And, and then you get two free guest tickets. You uh, no, you you have to pay for your guest tickets, but you do get to bring two two guests with you. So that's one of the ways that again we want to have some way of getting some people who are, uh, you know, maybe tangentially interested in Hickory but don't live in a place where it made sense for them. You can find somebody who's a uh, you know has a guest tech ticket and buy it from them. And how much are the guest tickets? Uh, I think they're. I have to double check on that. I think they're. I think they're either fifty or something like that. They're similar to the uh, the day ticket for if you hold a license. So what is a what is a full capacity day on the upper mountain look like at Hickory? How many day tickets are you actually going to make available? Yeah, I mean, I think we, we've tried to put in place. Uh, again, we haven't uh, we haven't had the experience of having this happen yet, but we think about 200 is about the right number of day tickets. Mm-hmm. Um, that'll that won't include the ski patrol or the you know other people who are you know kind of working there that day, but around 200. What's your goal for number of licenses? How many is it going to take to make this thing sustainable? 
Not a ton. I mean, I think I think at a certain point, I think the question kind of flips on its head and how many is too many? Um, you know, 100, 200 licenses is really all you need. You know, we've, we've recognized the fact that, you know, Hickory has a small but loyal community and we want to find a way to harness that and, and to really prioritize those people who are Hickory skiers to, to find them. You know, to that, that example, the guy I gave you before who came out and skied the dirt and the rocks and then kind of had his, you know, that one great powder day poached by a hundred people who showed up who had, you know, they were just there because Hickory happened to have snow. You know, we really want to get that person who is, who's there to support Hickory uh, in good times and in bad and, and really focus on prioritizing them. And, and have you worked out yet? If I buy a, a license, how do I guarantee that there's going to be a lift ticket waiting for me when I show up? If you're limiting lift ticket numbers, do I reserve that online? Do I call a number? How do I make sure if I see that storm incoming, that I don't, because for me, for example, Hickory is about a three, three and a half hour drive. So if I'm a license holder, how do I make sure there's a lift ticket for me when I show up? We won't sell more licenses than there would be lift tickets. So if you have a license, you're going to get, you'll be able to get a lift ticket. All right. So, so that is going to guarantee you, it does a couple things. Number one, for, for the Hickory skier, it guarantees that they're going to have a lift ticket when they show up. Now for Hickory, it guarantees income because like you said, the, the mountain had to shut down after the 2014 to 15 season because you just didn't have enough snow. So if you get enough license holders, say you get a hundred for this winter and it doesn't snow, you don't open. Well, you still have that money and you can at least do things like inspect the lifts and make sure the lodge doesn't burn down and, uh, you know, pay insurance and all these other things you have to do as a ski area. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's a question of going into it with your eyes open, right? It's it's a question of who bears the risk of a bad winter. And in, in the past, Hickory would bear that risk. Um, and what we're saying is in order for Hickory to, to survive, in order if we want to keep it, you know, keep it available for ne- the next generation, we want to keep it the way it is, that that can't happen. So we're going to, we're telling people, look, we're, we're explicitly transferring that risk to you. you. You know, when you buy the license that there, it's almost a certainty there are going to be winters that Hickory isn't open. Um you know, that, that, that happens at least the upper mountain, right? The upper mountain, the, the lower mountain, again, that's part of what, that's part of the reason you get a lower mountain season pass is that the lower mountain is skiable pretty much all the time. So it's, that, that's not going to be a, you know, that, that won't be as much of an issue, but um, it's, it's definitely a question of getting people to understand what it is they're, they're buying into. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the challenge here, David, right? Because it, it relates back to what you said about the expectations around snowmaking and fast chairlifts is that, Skiers have been trained to expect cheap passes to skiing, right? That's almost like the pass is almost besides the point where you can go and get an Epic pass from Vail and access 40 resorts around the world for less than $800, right? And and you know that those mountains are going to be open at some point in the winter. And what you're saying here is, is different. It's okay, pay this because you want to be part of this experience and you may not get to ski, with this ticket. And by the way, if it snows, you're going to have to pay even more. So it's a tricky story to tell. Uh, but, but what has the interest been like so far? Do, do you think that people are buying into this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I don't think we'll have any trouble. As I said, I think the, I think the bigger problem will be having, you know, may potentially having to have a wait list for, for people who want to be, uh, you know, part of this, the community. It's, it's a challenge, I think, to explain it to people it, because it's, the, the underlying challenge itself is quite complicated. You know, I, I can't tell you how many times people will, you know, comment on our Facebook posts or our Instagram or whatever, and just say, well, we'll just put in snowmaking. Why don't you just put in snowmaking? It's like, well, you, you have to understand what that, why that doesn't work. And, and that story is hard to tell. And so part of what we're really doing, and that's the reason I let off with, you know, a, a discussion about the challenge is getting people to understand the challenge gets them to understand the solution. Mm-hmm. All right. So, so part of it is the mountain access pass or a part of it is the upper mountain license, but talk about the mountain access pass. How much will that cost? What does that get you? Yeah. So, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, Alpine touring is a big part of Hickory. It's something that, um, you know, as, as AT has become a bigger segment of the ski market and, you know, pre pandemic and actually, you know, you would have said that was the only part of the market that was really growing now in the pandemic, that's really accelerated. People want to get out there. Um, you know, it's great exercise. And in many ways, you know, I think Hickory is a really good spot to do that because it gives people a, uh, you know, kind of a nice entry point into the backcountry, right? It's it's something that you can go out, you can learn some skills that you can take into the backcountry. Um, you know, it's, you don't have to start by deciding that you're going to go, you know, 
go way into the Adirondack Park and find something that's, you know, really difficult. Um, you know, right. actually the, the whole North Creek Warren County area has got lots of really accessible backcountry that's, you know, the right up, slide down at Gore, right? You know, um, but Hickory is very, very popular for that. And, you know, there's, uh, that's sort of been on, you know, unspoken. People just sort of went up and did it and, you know, we're just really trespassing. Um, and so we've put a kiosk at the bottom of the mountain. We ask people to sign in when they go up so that we know who's there and, um, you know, we get them to sign a waiver. Um, and it's, you know, it's a hundred bucks for the winter, you know, please come use it, do it as much as you want. We'd love to have you there. It's a, it's an important part of the community. Um, and it's in many ways sort of the soul of Hickory. So we want people to do that. Um, we want them to do it safely. We want them to, to sign in. So we know that they're there. We need their, you know, we need their waiver and, uh, you know, it's a hundred bucks for the winter for an uphill pass basically. And, you know, 200, if you want, if you want to hike in the summer. So that does not give you the right to buy Poma lift tickets for the upper mountain, correct? That's right. You have to, you have to buy the historic preservation fee to, to do that. Okay. I think an important piece of context here, David, is, is that it's not only up, uphill access to Hickory, the ski area, but to the whole Three Sisters range. And, and this is a really, really interesting piece of terrain. So tell us about the Three Sisters and, and where the existing Hickory ski area fits into that complex. Yeah. So actually there, you know, the, there's a, it's a mix of public and private land. Um, if you were to, you know, if you were to go on Google and take a look at it, you would see, um, you know, there's a part of it that, you know, it's right on the Hudson, which is, which is pretty neat. I mean, I think from a, from a aesthetic standpoint, it'd be hard to find anywhere that was really much prettier, uh, particularly, you know, early in the season when the Hudson hasn't fro- you know, frozen over solid, uh, it, it's extremely pretty. But, um, you know, there's a lot of really good uh, skiable terrain in that area. So obviously you've got Hickory kind of in the front there. You've got a couple of peaks in the back, um, the three sisters, right? So there were three little peaks, um, actually one of which Bill Van Pelt owns. Um, so that's, you know, if Hickory ever really gets going, there's always a possibility of, you know, potentially expanding out to another peak. Um, but, you know, there's a there's an old Jeep road that kind of goes through the, uh, you know, kind of comes up from the base lodge. So if you really want to get back in there, there's there's a way to do that. Uh, that's not marked. It's not really, um, you know, it's find find a local might be the best suggestion. If you really want to venture back all the way back in there, um, you know, Hickory itself, the, the ski area has got, uh, I'll probably get shot for saying this, but there, there are, there are probably more unmarked trails than there are marked trails in the mountains. So if you're, if you know where you're going and you, you know, find somebody who knows Hickory, there, uh, there are a lot of, a lot of good places to ski. And the other two peaks, how do they compare vertical drop wise to Hickory ski area? Yeah, so I think if you went all the way to the back peak, um, you know, you could, you know, if you skied all the way down on the Hudson side, it's probably 1,400 feet, Hickory's 1,200 feet. Um, so it's, you know, they're, they're not, they're not the Rockies, but they're, you know, they're, they're nice for what they are. And, you know, I think, uh, I'm not sure if this is still true, but at one point in time, Hickory was the largest, uh, like the highest vertical um, uh, surface lift only mountain, uh, at least in New England or kind of the Northeast. So I'm sure that, uh, that that's a pretty neat thing to be able to to ski. It really changes your, the cadence of your day. Um, in, in part, it's, it was sort of an interesting, you know, we see all these great black and white photos of what skiing was like. And I think there's a real nostalgia around that. But it's when you start to experience it, you start to understand kind of where some of these photographs came from and kind of the, what you're seeing in those pictures in a way that you might not have otherwise. So, you know, if you go to a, a you know, if you're at a, a traditional ski area, you, you ski down, you hop on the chairlift to go back up and, you know, okay, great. You, you can do that for a long time. When you're at Hickory and you're riding a Palma that's pulling you up the mountain at the speed of an express quad, you're skiing up and you're skiing down and it's tiring both <laughs> ways. I mean, the, uh, you know, you're squeezing that Palma for, for dear life as you're going up, you know, windfall, the Palma too. I mean, it's, it's 30 degrees. I mean, it's an extremely steep Palma lift. So what that one of the interesting things about that is it leads to a different sort of rhythm for the ski day, right? You you can't ski six hours in a row like that. It just it just your legs give out. So what you end up with is a base area like a, a base lodge that's extremely uh, you know people are popping in and out all day long, right? It's you know because you're skiing for an hour, you're taking six or seven runs, you've swept through everything you have on, you come back and you grab a water, you sit by the fire, and everybody else is doing that too. So you you kind of you know, you end up just seeing everybody who's out on the mountain. If there are only 200 people out there, by the time you've done, you've skied there for a morning, you know, you've seen all of them. It's really kind of a, it leads to a very, very different uh, experience and a very neat one, something that you, you sort of feel like skiing has kind of lost a little bit. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about those Palmas a little bit more, because from what I've read, they're very expensive to maintain. And, and I, I would imagine hard to find parts for, but just talk about that maintenance piece of it a little bit and, and, 
and how big of a challenge that has been to getting Hickory going again or keeping it going? Yeah, big, very big challenge. Um, you know, I, I, I compare it to sort of like, uh, you know, people who repair steam locomotives, right? They're, mm-hmm. <laughs> you have, if you have a Baldwin locomotive, uh, well, Baldwin went out of business, you know, 100 years ago. So good luck finding any spare parts. Um, right. that, that's kind of where Hickory is too. Uh, we've had to have things, you know, manufactured. We've had to have things that are, you know, kind of custom, you know, custom built for these Palmas. Uh, very difficult to find spare parts. It's it's a labor of love. Matt Connell is, uh, you know, has has been sort of the guy who's been in charge of uh, these lifts for years, and it's just I can't even describe. As a, you know, I'm a I'm a commercial real estate lawyer. I do not know anything about maintaining lifts. I have no pretense. I mean, my wife would think I probably don't even know what a screwdriver is. So <laughs> the fact that Matt Connell has done this for for you know years and years and years. And, and that knowledge got passed down, you know, you know, by, from one generation to the next, how to maintain these lifts. So it, they're really held together with, with love. You know, it's one of those things where we, we constantly are, are fighting with, with New York state, with the department of labor there, you know, they, they they make our life really, really hard. There, there's no question about it. You know, they, safety is the, is a number one priority of course. And it, it is for us too. Um, but they, they, they certainly don't do us any favors in terms of understanding that it can be very difficult to, uh, you know, to, to maintain these lifts and, and, you know, spare parts can be difficult. And, you know, some of these things end up being, I don't want to say jury rig, but they're sort of, you know, they're, you know, you're using replacement parts. So it's been six years since the Scaria has operated. Have they been maintained? Have they been inspected? They have. Uh, and that's one of the things we're actually <laughs> kind of squabbling with with New York State at the moment is, uh, you know, that they're, uh, you know, kind of which level of inspection is, is applicable to us. Is it one that's, um, you know, the code says that if you've operated them for maintenance purposes every, you know, then, then you're fine, which is what we've done. Um, you know, and you just basically need a, you know, we've had our wire inspection, everything's you know, good to go there. We should just be able to get an inspection from them and hopefully get open. Um, you know, they've been giving us last couple last week or so. They've been kind of agitating for for a uh, you know more of an engineering report. Which so we're kind of always always kind of arguing with about it. Like no no we we, we talked about this last time and this is the, this is the path you sent us down. So um, yeah they're they're in, they're really actually in great shape and they've, they've you know we've spent way more money upgrading and and uh, you know kind of just caring for these maintaining these lifts than it would cost to put a new one in. So if you look over at Mad River Glen, when they re- upgraded their single chair back in, I believe, 2007, they they didn't replace it with a higher capacity chair. They just upgraded it with another single chair. And they basically, they used they reused some of the old yep. uh, towers and things, but they basically um, just rebuilt it and put a brand new single chair in that'll last another 50 years or whatever. If obviously Mad River Glen is in a much different financial position, much more stable, uh, operations than Hickory has been. But if you were in the position where Hickory got some sort of capital fund to work with, and I'm not sure if you've discussed this in the past, but would you look to upgrade and modernize those Pomas or actually replace them with some sort of double chair or some other lower capacity lift? I, I don't think we would ever replace them. Um, and, you know, we, maybe we'd get a, a, you know, kind of a, a new Palma. Uh, but, you know, part of the, part of the, the reason that Mad River Glen has a single chair is that the mountain can, if you put a double chair or an express quad up there, on a, on a natural snow mountain, you're going to ski it off, right? So Hickory, even if we could put a double chair, and that's again, you know, comments in the Facebook page right here, why don't you just put a double chair in or something? Um, we, a natural snow mountain can't handle that kind of volume. Um, so I think there's always a possibility that if, you know, if it really gets to the point where, you know, it's absolutely impossible to, to find parts, we can't actually operate the lifts anymore, then then that's something that, you know, maybe we'd replace it with a, a modern Palma or a T-bar or something like that. But I, I think that's, you know, such a big part of the character of Hickory is the, is the surface lifts. And, you know, it comes back to what I talked about a moment ago, right? The, the part of the Hickory experience is that kind of in and out of the lodge, the, the, the fact you need a little bit of a break from the surface lifts that, you know, ski up, ski down. It's, it's a very, um, I think putting a double chair or something in would, would really change the character. How about the lower mountain lifts? Just tell us about the history of the T-bar and the pony lift. And, and just the same question, I guess, um, when you're talking about beginners, I think it's a little bit different story. So, so maybe a magic carpet or something eventually would make sense down there, but, but just tell us about the lower mountain lifts and your thoughts about the future development of that little pod down there. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, um, you're, you're spot on, right? I mean, I think a, a magic carpet, okay. It's not, uh, you know, is it historically, you know, accurate or is it, you know, part of Hickory, Hickory's history? No, of course not, but it's a great way to teach little kids to ski. And, and you know, I, you know, this from having a kid and I said, me too, right. It's, you know, Getting a getting a three year old to hang on to a handle toe is I, I can't imagine that would actually happen. So, um, 
yeah, I think, I think a magic card would be fantastic. They're, you know, it, you're kind of coming up at a point in time to where a lot of those sort of first generation magic carpets are, are kind of, you know, maybe coming available for, you know, a resort that's replacing it for the second generation version or something like that. So yeah, that, that's something that, um, you know, I think is, is definitely a viable option. The T-Bar, we love the T-Bar. It's a, it's an old hall T-Bar. It's really cool. It has no, you know, it has no spring, no kind of padding to it. You know, it's a, but it's a very, it's a very user-friendly lift. And, um, you know, actually, you know, I ski a lot in the Alps and, you know, they've got tons and tons of little T-Bars thrown in and they've got the, the ones that have those retractors on them. And I actually find that to be really hard to use. The, uh, this, this one is, uh, it's really a, a nice beginner-friendly lift, and it also kind of creates a nice way for someone who wants to transition to that upper mountain. Okay, here's a surface lift. Here's how it works. Learn to, you know, kind of learn to use it. And, a, you know, a T-bar is kind of a good stepping stone up to a, uh, you know, to a Palma. All right, let's talk about snowmaking a little bit. Mad River Glen does actually have snowmaking up to 2,300 feet, and it's one of, it's one of their co-op bylaws. You cannot do snowmaking above 2,300 yeah. feet because we want that natural snow experience. So clearly the hickory sentiment is that snowmaking would compromise the experience on the upper mountain. What about the lower mountain? Is there a version of hickory uh, where you'd have snowmaking on the lower mountain? And if so, what would it take to make that happen? Yeah, I mean, I think snowmaking on the lower mountain is something that, um, you know, the foundation potentially could help support. Um, you know, it's, it's an expensive install. It's, you know, it's um, at least a million. I think we had a quote for, a, a, you know, a million dollars um, that would have been, you know, six, seven years ago. So can't imagine it's gotten any cheaper. Um, it's, yeah, I think it's it's something that would make sense if the community was able to support it, if we were able to find enough sponsors and enough donations to make that happen. Uh, lights are something we've talked about too. Isn't that, that's something we actually is, you know, uh, very viable. That's, that's not very expensive compared to the snowmaking. Um, you know, the lower mountain doesn't, doesn't, you know, because it's skiable on so little snow, it doesn't really need it. It, you know, it would be a nice, sort of a nice to have, but not a necessity. Um, you know, what snowmaking would help you do is probably groom it more. Um, you know, one of the things that we didn't talk about, Hickory doesn't, ha- we have a groomer, but it doesn't have a grooming attachment. It has a packer, which if you've never seen one is actually just like a corrugated aluminum, uh, like cylinder that, that gets pulled behind a, uh, you know, a, a, a snowcat. And so it leads to, um, you know, kind of these leaves, these sort of roller marks in the snow, as opposed to, you know, digging down with a tiller, changing the, the, you know, kind of taking that top layer of crust if it's icy and breaking it apart and putting it back down in you know, kind of a nice smooth kind of corduroy fashion, you know, that, that would be kind of, those are the narrow whale cords Our, our groomer leaves, you know, our uh, packer leaves big wide whale cords. So uh, yeah, that, that's something that would probably help us. Um, you know, do that on the lower mountain. You can't really put the tiller down unless you've got, you know, at least, you know, at least a foot of snow on the bottom would be nice if you want to kind of do something with it. And it's just as far as drawing water from the Hudson, because obviously you're right there in the banks. How big of a hassle is that to even get the environmental approval? And do you have access to the Hudson? So there was a time when that that approval was was granted by the Army Corps. Um, I think that approval has subsequently lapsed for, for some of the reasons I talked about, that it didn't really make sense under the prior incarnation of Hickory uh, to put snowmaking on the mountain, right? It didn't, for all the reasons we discussed, right? I think we didn't want to change the character of the upper mountain. Um, the lower mountain, you know, wasn't really popular enough to, you know, it was kind of just an underutilized asset. So now that the, you know, the there's a, a way to use the lower mountain that makes sense. I think it's something that, uh, you know, again, if there's a, it could be fundraised for, then it'd probably be something that would make sense. Um, that, that said, it's, you know, it's, it's very expensive. So it, uh, I'm not sure it would gain you a whole lot more days in a winter, you know, snowmaking kind of, if you look at, you know, if you look at what snowmaking does, and we, we talked a little about that earlier, right. The, that changes the, the, the quality of the snow, but also guarantees a longer season. Um, you know, you can, you can get Christmas week. If you it's interesting, we're going back and if you look at Hickory when it opened and kind of look at Gore and North Creek, historically, you know, the, the first snow train that went to North Creek in the, you know, in the thirties, the first time it went was in February, end of February, early March, you know, that, wow. that was a, a much shorter season. Um, you, you can get lucky and get Christmas, of course. And there are plenty of times, actually, the first time I went to Hickory was, uh, you know, kind of right after Christmas. I, I think I, I shared this story with you offline that, you know, we pulled in the parking lot and, uh, you know, looked up at the mountain. It was a cold, you know, so I was trespassing too. I'll, I'll, don't, Bill Van Pelt, don't, don't, you know, don't report me. Um, you know, it was a bit, you know, it was a clear, cold, snowy night. It snowed a foot that day. We'd skied at Gore, had a great day, pulled in the parking lot, full moon, looking up the mountain, looked beautiful. And I, you know, I'm kind of enamored with it. And, you know, I'm a history buff. I was a history major in college. I love it. I'm looking at the lifts and the trails and I'm like, oh my God, this is so cool. It was probably like 11 o'clock at night. 
nobody's around. This is just as neat as it gets. My buddy standing next to me turns to me and says, I think they forgot to cut the trails. <laughs> they're, like, you know, they're very narrow. And, uh, you know, so anyhow, so that, you know, that's, that's a long way of saying that, uh, you know, it, uh, snowmaking could make sense. It would add, you know, some, um, you know, some more sort of uh, days to the calendar, potentially. Not a whole lot more. It probably wouldn't change what we, we were able to do on the lower mountain, except in the sort of worst of circumstances. But, you know, you don't get too many winters around here where it's not, or in Warrensburg, where it's both kind of cold and dry. You know, it's that, that's sort of an unusual pattern. Oftentimes, if it's warm and dry, well, the snowmaking would help you a little bit. But, you know, it'd be, it's obviously that the million dollars or plus to put it in doesn't count into the cost of running it, obviously. So, you know, what, what you got out of it, it, just it's one of those things where as we look at all of Hickory, the problem of moving the goalpost too far, we thought was was probably the biggest problem. If you move the goalpost too far, you just won't get there. Right. I want, I want to go back to what you said about those narrows, that old school trail network. I, I know people love the glades there at Hickory. Do, have these actually been deliberately managed and thinned or or are these just naturally kind of spaced so you can ski them if you go up the mountain? No comment. <laughs> yeah, no, there's there, there, there's one on the map. Paul's Peril is on the map. Uh, named Paul Moore, a longtime Hickory skier and just a salty or one of the great, great people in the story of Hickory. Um, there, are, there are quite a few glades that are, uh, you know, uh, we'll just say the bears have, have thinned them out over the years. The license to explore. I love it. All right. Talk about the lodge real quick. This is a really beautiful lodge. Uh, is it still in good shape? Has it been maintained? I know buildings fall apart pretty quick if no one's taking care of them. Yeah. Lodge is great. Uh, we actually have a summer camp that's there in the summer. It's got a great big open circular fire pit. Um, as far as the health department hasn't shut us down on that one. Uh, you know, it's like a really cool old the building department, I guess the, uh, you know, just a, just a great place. In fact, if you, uh, one of the real challenges, if you're at Hickory, the, the skiing is difficult, but manning the fireplace is actually a big challenge too, because the, the benches are fixed into the concrete. So if you, you, know, you come in and it's cold and somebody says, oh, you know, I'm cold. They, they throw a couple of logs on the fire pit and all of a sudden, you know, it's too hot to sit next to the, in the fire. You're, you're sitting there and, you know, actually we had a, uh, a dinner there a few years ago where somebody fell asleep and they woke up and looked like they've been sitting on the beach for, you know, five hours with no sunblock. They, <laughs> they got so hot. Um, so yeah, the, the baseline is really cool. It's, it's not the same vintage as the, um, you know, it's more like seventies vintage, the original lodge burnt down. Um, so it's got, you know, just a very cool feel to it. Um, but you know, it's, it's very, you know, it's got an, the Windbauer room on the second floor. It's got a great view of the slopes. Um, you know, Hickory is about the, to, in many respects, it's about the people. It's not about, the amenities. I think that's anyone who's ever been there would tell you that it's, you know, it's the sort of fundamental elemental part of skiing, right? It's I'm here with people. And, uh, you know, I, I often say, I think I could ski a 200 foot bunny hill in the Midwest if I did it with great people, right? It's, it's all about the the experience of being out there, that shared experience. You know, some of the photographs that I, I shared with you from uh, the, the Braidwood family's uh, photograph album. I mean, you look at it and, and it's what captivates people at Hickory, the look in the people's eyes, right? You see how excited they are to be there. You see little kids sitting by the fire, having a hot chocolate. You see them outside. You, you know, if you, if you look at the little video we put together about Hickory coming back, that, that was the feel we were trying to express, express to people was, you know, for all the things that modern skiing has done that are wonderful. And I, I love chairlifts. I love, you know, I wouldn't want to ski pommel lifts every day. I love gondolas. I love fast lifts. You know, it's, that's wonderful. But let's take a second and look at what we've also maybe left behind. And, and I think that's when you see this love of old ski areas, of historic black and white photographs of, you know, of all the things that are kind of associated with that. The nostalgia comes from the sense that we've lost something. And, you know, I think that's in many ways what draws people to Hickory is the sense that it's not just a bygone era. It's not just, you know, look at that, you know, look at that. It's old. It's what you know, they may not be able to put their finger on it, but they know that there's something about that, that their day there when they ski at Hickory, that's different and they like it. And it, you know, it doesn't have to be what you do every time. It, it might be too much for people to do every time. It might be too much, too much for everybody to do, even myself included. You know, I like high speed groomers as much as the next guy. I like, you know, not banging my skis up. Um, you know, I've got skis, rock skis and Hickory skis. Um, you know, but, but it's that feeling that, that, you know, we've, we've lost some of this. And I, I think particularly with COVID, um, you know, it's been really tough not to have people inside and, and the, the sort of inside aspect of the sport has certainly been lost. Um, in a place like Hickory, the lodge and that, you know, kind of inside, outside, you know, in constantly going out and, and, you know, you can watch your kids, your friends' kids are there and they watch your kids and it, that, that just sort of community feel happens sort of organically um, in a way that is, is pretty neat. It's very, uh, you know, kind of white Christmas vintage 
So, so you have the plan, David, you have the enthusiasm, you have great intentions. Obviously you have a tremendous passion for this place. If we step back and we look at the plan that you and your fellows came up with, to what extent is this sort of step one? Hey, let's see how this goes. Let's see what the interest is and we'll adjust. And we're going to find a model to make this work. And, and Hickory will be a part of New York skiing for the foreseeable future. So how much should we look at it that way as, as, Hey, like, we're just getting going here, but we're going to find a way to make this happen. Well, I mean, I guess, uh, you know, Oliver Wendell Holmes about the law once said that the, the life of the law is experience, not logic. And I, I think that's that's true of a lot of things. And this Hickory is certainly no exception, right? It's, you know, you can have a plan and then you've got to figure out ways to, to adjust. Um, you know, we think that the thing that is included in this plan that was absent from prior kind of iterations of Hickory was an understanding of the parameters and why those parameters themselves can't change. That if you want, you know, the obvious solutions don't work. So let's come up with something that, you know, that, that does. And, and we'll constantly be looking to adjust it, constantly looking to wait, you know, to find new ways to engage with more stakeholders. I think that's one of the things that it's, you know, difficult about Hickory is that we have a low capacity for all the reasons we discussed, right? The, the, the fact that we have single pommel lifts to go up the mountain, the fact that the mountain gets skied off, we don't get that much snow, we're probably getting less snow than we used to. Uh, all those things, you know, kind of create a need to have a small community. Um, but we want to find ways to make sure that we're capturing as many people into that small tent as we can, if that makes sense. And what does a good winter look like, David? Just most optimistically, are you open? Is the upper, upper mountain open 10 days? Is it two days? Is it, is it just opening at all? Do you, do you have a number? Yeah. I mean, so I, I can, I can give you kind of, a, you know, experience from the last time we were open. We, we had a couple of really good winters, um, you know, where the, we were open, the upper mountain opened in January and skied through, you know, ski through March, I, you know, it, it's, I guess that would have been winter of 20, 2013 or 2014. Um, you know, we had a series there. I had a season pass to Gore and I don't, <laughs> I think there was a good solid six weeks. I didn't go to Gore. I mean, it, every nice. time it, it seemed like we had a, you know, a Wednesday snowstorm every Wednesday for, you know, for four weeks. And uh, I've got some, you know, I've got some pictures of us skiing on, on windfall and, you know, skiing on some of these, uh, you know, kind of upper mountain slopes. And, and, you know, you would think you're in Colorado. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's wild. That that's, and that's the hickory that people remember and they want to be, you know, they want to be there for that. And we basically told them, look, we want you to be there for that, but you got to be willing to take the dirt, dirt in the rocks along with that, because that's what, you know, you can't just sort of cherry pick the, the good. Um, for the most part, I think people are pretty open with that, you know, open to that, um, you know, a good season. We've definitely, you know, it's, you know, fr- even just Fridays and Saturdays or sorry, Saturdays and Sundays on the upper mountain, you know, th- there's no reason that in a really good winter, you couldn't have 20 days. That's, that's not unheard of. Certainly. And is that your intention to run the upper mountain lifts on Saturdays and Sundays or, or, or are you going to expand those hours into the week? I, I don't think it's, again, the, the, one of the challenges with, with a natural snow only ski area is that every skier that, um, that skis there pushes snow down the mountain. One of the things that actually no, nobody really knows or talks about I had a buddy who, uh, for a winter, was a, was a groomer out in Colorado. He said that the stat that they would use was that every skier pushes about one ton of snow down the mountain a day. So if you think about that, just in terms of you know the, the physics problem, right, that every skier you put up there is pushing one ton of snow down the mountain, that, that becomes a problem if you put too many people out there. So if you're, you know, if you're open on Fridays or, you know, all week, you know, I think in the past, even historically, Hickory never opened midweek except for you know, Christmas week and, uh, or if they had enough snow, which is unusual, uh, president's week again, because a lot of that was volunteers, right? It was people who had day jobs. So it's, it, it actually is another one of those things. that's kind of a unique little quirk to Hickory. That's kind of fun is, Hey, you know, it snows on a snows on a Thursday. Everybody's tracked out. Come on up. And what about the lower mountain? Are you going to run that during the week? Yeah, I think there's there's a there's a push to try to run that more. Um, I, I'd have to check with the foundation folks on how how many days a week they want to run it. But I know one of the things they really like would like to be able to do is have uh, some night skiing to be able to get kids out there, uh, you know, kind of one night a week at least after school or you know Friday nights or something like that. So how do folks, if they're listening to this, they want to get that lower mountain pass, they want to get the upper mountain license, they want to get just the mountain pass. How do they do that? Yeah, either uh, in person when they show up, uh, we're going to do it for this winter. You know, again, the the idea is that you got to make a bet in advance before you get a chance to see the the snow conditions that that hasn't happened this winter, uh, just because of the myriad of things that need to happen in order to get get Hickory going. Um, but the web through the website or, uh, you know, in person uh, when they come. All right, David. Well, I cannot tell you how excited I am to 
see the possibility of Hickory reopening. I have to say, I really like this plan. I, I think that it it takes the best elements of different things we've seen work throughout the economy from the Mad River Glen Co-op to personal seat licenses in sports and, and all these different ideas and kind of combines them in a very unique and, and, I, and I think affordable way to help preserve this experience. So, uh, you know, congratulations to you and your team for having the vision and the imagination and the persistence to come up with this. And, and I really hope that you make it work. And, and I hope this is a sustainable model and, and we can all be skiing Hickory for many years to come. Me too. I mean, I think it's, um, you know, I have two little kids and, and to me, the idea that there was a world that they didn't get to ski Hickory, um, you know, that, that, that made me sad. I, you know, I remember actually, um, the first time I went up one of the, you know, I went up Palma, I guess it was Palma one, you know, I had seen, you know, Jeremy Davis from Nelsap and had this incredible photo gallery of, of, uh, Hickory. And I, I just remember looking around and thinking that I was like, this was in black and white to me, right? Like it was, so I looked at a black and white photo that had just come to color. And I, I, I share your sentiment. I, I certainly hope that um, Hickory is there because I want my kids to ski there. I want my kids' kids to ski there. And I want them to realize that, you know, this is this is the soul of the sport. So I look forward to hopefully seeing you up there. Come, uh, you know, our, our ski clubhouse, our Ivy ski clubhouse is right around the corner. We've got a hot tub and a curling rink. So if you want to come, uh, you know, come grab a couple beers with us, we'll we'll show you some of those trails that I don't uh, don't know where they are. <laughs> Listen, David, you won't be able to keep me away from the place if you get it open. I, I uh, last winter we had that long streak of, of snow and cold. I was like, oh man, I wish Hickory was going right now. Me too, me too. Soon enough, well, I'll look forward to it. That's David Kronheim, president of the Shareholders Corporation at Hickory Ski Center, New York. I cannot even tell you how jacked up I am about the possibility of skiing Hickory this winter. I've been waiting a long, long time for this, and I want this very badly. And if it happens, that will be a very big moment in New York skiing. Thank you very much for that, David, and thank you all for listening. Revving the podcast back up here for the year after a little holiday break, and I have a whole lot more coming your way. In the months ahead, you will hear from the leaders of Timberline Lodge, Oregon. That one, in fact, is already recorded. Boyne Highlands. Tamarack, Idaho, Beaver Mountain, Utah, Little Switzerland, Wisconsin, Snow Ridge, New York, and a monster that I just booked, Big Sky, Montana. While you wait for those, remember to please subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com and follow along with the storm on Twitter or Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. Thank you all for listening. Stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.